Well, this is going to take a while. <laughs> I hope you're not tired. Well, the first one is quite interesting. I'm having trouble meditating. <laughs> My back hurts. I'm becoming frustrated. I'm ready to quit. To try is to suffer, but to quit is to suffer. It looks like dukkha everywhere. <laughs> well, something has sunk in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dukkha everywhere. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Okay, the suggestion is whatever doesn't work the way we want it, that's just the way it is. Dukkha only arises if we want it to be different. In order not to be frustrated and not to want to quit and not to have any suffering, to accept the way it is and not to have that great craving for a good meditation. There is only one cause for dukkha, and that's craving. Drop it. No dukkha. So the meditation is, just the way it is. If the back is very painful, one can do something. One can go and sit in a chair. One can lean against the wall. One can... Uh, get a massage, uh, all sorts of things one can do for one's back. Again, if it's painful, it's an unpleasant feeling. Sure, it's an unpleasant feeling, but it only becomes dukkha when we don't want that unpleasant feeling, when we're craving to get rid of it. You can't learn anything more important I feel like repeating the whole thing. It's so important. It's only dukkha if you don't want it the way it is. Drop it and there's no dukkha. So the meditation is the way it is. So the back has painful feelings. So that's fine. It just is. Obviously, one needs to do something about the painful feelings because they can become quite overpowering and then there is no way that the mind can be uh, concentrated at all but we have absolutely no suffering if we don't turn against what there is but just flow with it try and you'll see it's really important to try that a craving for a good meditation, that produces real dukkha. Next one is also interesting. I've never had an interview with a teacher 
nor been at a retreat of longer than three days. How can one best use the interview? No need to worry about it. Those that give the interviews know exactly what questions to ask. That's what they're there for. So please don't worry about it. There's nothing, nothing uh, uh, difficult or um, uh, at all overbearing about it. They all know what questions to ask. And I think they all know what answers to give to. <laughs> now here's a nice long one. Exactly what to do with that one. I have an opportunity to introduce meditation to many people. These people come to a place in the country where I work to find peace and quiet and to restore themselves. They return to their hectic lives with great reluctance and sadness. For the most part, these people have not consciously chosen a spiritual path and have not previously meditated, yet they have begun to realize that they need a way to survive and change their stress-filled lives. I will have two hours to spend with an individual. I do not, of course, expect to teach them to meditate in that amount of time, but I would like to present them with a door they might be enticed to open. Can you give me any advice? Well, it certainly takes far less than two hours to tell somebody to put their attention on the breath. In fact, it can take two minutes. Well, that would be a bit too short. But within ten minutes, one can describe to put the attention on the breath, to label the distracting thoughts, and in another possibly fifteen minutes, one can do a loving-kindness meditation. Now, people with stress-filled lives would be very much helped with loving-kindness meditation. Because stress is something that we put on ourselves. Everybody thinks it comes from outside. It's the traffic, it's the boss, it's uh, the people at home, it's the uh, time that one doesn't have. It's all just viewpoints. In reality, it's a pressure that we put on ourselves. And that creates a great deal of stress. The pressure to do, to be, to become, to have results, and that's very difficult to live with. So one of the things one could possibly tell these people, if they are willing to listen, to stop putting so much pressure on themselves. But if they want to learn to meditate, if... Um, It doesn't say so here that particularly that they want to learn to meditate, but it may be something that they would be interested in. It can be helpful to play a tape with loving-kindness meditation on it for them and let them sit with it and uh, join in. Any of that will be helpful. But all of the things that are related to stress have those two origins. One is putting pressure on oneself and the other one is lack of love. 
So both those things would be helpful in that situation. When should one do contemplation in one's own practice? After a few moments of attention to the breath or when a state of calm is reached. Either way it's fine. Um, one can consciously choose a certain time for contemplation and putting the attention on the breath for just a little while calms the mind maybe sufficiently to have <clears throat> a contemplation which is not too discursive. Should that not be the case, then it would be very helpful to first become calm and then do a contemplation. But whatever one can arrange in one's own practice, most people don't have a lot of time during the day. So they need to kind of sort it out when they can do the one thing and when they can do the other. A bit of attention on the breath usually helps, but if the mind is still very um, distracted, then one needs to become somewhat calmer first. However, the contemplation itself can produce calm. So one really needs to try that out. In the context of the five daily recollections, do you use karma in the meaning of action or result of action? Buddha said, karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. Intention in the mind. The first karma that we make are our thoughts. That's why one has to watch one's thoughts, the content of thought, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, labeling, knowing what one is thinking. If one just allows the mind to do whatever it pleases, one usually makes a fair bit of bad karma. The first instance of making karma is the thought process. Then comes speech, and then comes action. So the Buddha said, karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. So even if we don't know that we're intentionally thinking, it still produces bad karma. It's just our ignorance that allows us not to know that there's intention behind it. Is karma here the same as the law of cause and effect? Yes, it is cause and effect. Concerning the first noble truth, existence is dukkha, wouldn't it be more correct to use the words conditioned existence or ego existence or unenlightened existence instead of just existence. Otherwise one would easily fall into the nihilistic view and wants to end existence. Then suicide would be an answer for those who don't believe in continuation of the mind after death. 
thanks for clarifying. No, the Buddha said not just like that. He said, all existence is dukkha. Which, of course, does not include the Arahant, the Enlightened One, which is the only unconditioned state there is. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about our existence, not about something that may come about one day. So the Buddha said, all existence is dukkha. And the uh, wish to end one's life is the third of the cravings. First one was a craving for sensual gratification. The second one was the craving for existence. And the third one was a craving for non-existence. The other side of the same coin. A craving for non-existence which comes about when all things go wrong and when we feel dreadfully sorry for ourselves. The nihilistic view of trying to kill oneself so that there is no existence is obviously not going to work whether one believes in a continuation of the mind after death or not because if one wants to kill oneself one knows that there is some oneself namely me that wants to be killed and that's total delusion so it doesn't help at all to think either one way or the other existence is dukkha and not being there doesn't remove the dukkha because that's even more dukkha it's only getting out of delusion that removes the dukkha so we don't um, say conditioned existence because then which existence is that and which is another all of it the whole lot of it is dukkha I wish to be of service to others. When I sit with people, I'm often struck by their suffering, which is primarily psychological. Witnessing this suffering sometimes produces accumulative exhaustion, sometimes to the point of illness. Could you please advise a practice technique to address this difficulty? The first thing to do is to become aware of one's own suffering and then to have compassion for oneself and then compassion creates a sort of foundation of strength a foundation of security and with that compassion to extend that to others, whether one realizes their suffering or not, doesn't make any difference. If one realizes it, so much the better, because it'd be easier to extend compassion. If one doesn't realize it, then one uh, 
can still extend the compassion because one has seen in oneself that existence means dukkha. And that is mostly psychological, mostly in the mind. It's not usually that the body is in such a condition that we suffer. Sometimes, of course, it is, but not usually. It's usually in the mind, the suffering. On the other hand, we can remember that Dukkha is our very best teacher. There's no one to compare with that teacher. Just think for a moment that you come now to the teacher and you say, my back hurts, my knees hurt, I'm frustrated, I'm quitting, I'm going home. What does the teacher say? Oh, I'm very sorry about that. But if you want to go home, well, that's what you'll have to do. Now then, you go and see Dukkha, and you say, my back hurts, my knees hurt, I'm frustrated, I'm quitting, I'm going home. Dukkha says, by all means, but I'm coming along. the only reliable teacher. All the others have a tendency to disappear again. This one sticks around. The Buddha said that there were four different kinds of people. The first kind, they'd only have to hear about the suffering of others and immediately they would know that they'd have to practice spiritual um, discipline. The next kind, they'd have to see it. They'd have to see the suffering of others, and they'd know they'd have to practice a spiritual discipline. The third kind, the suffering would have to happen within their immediate families. And then they would know they'd have to practice. And the fourth kind, the suffering would have to happen to themselves. So again you can see that recognizing suffering is an excellent opening for practice. To become exhausted or ill from it has two reasons. The first reason is the fear of having the same kind of suffering. The fear of that exhausts one, makes one feel, well, could make one feel ill, and it certainly does not contain compassion. So the second reason is the lack of compassion. Because if we protect ourselves with compassion, then we are secure and the other person also gets a feeling from us. So the, the fear of having the same kind of dukkha and not being protected through compassion 
creates this situation which happens so often in service-orientated um, jobs so that a, a burnout results from it. This is the reason why there's burnout. The suffering of one person creating the suffering in another. It's not useful. It's counterproductive. Having one person having dukkha, it doesn't help at all when we get two having dukkha. All we get is double dukkha. But if we get one person with compassion, then there's a great deal to be gained. The fear of our own dukkha is very prevalent, but we need to recognize it. We need to know ourselves better. I'm sure you're aware of some of the new theories being purported by today's mind-body scientists such as Deepak Chopra. One of these is that all cells in our bodies have the capability of continual regeneration. I'll just stop there for a moment um, there's nothing new about that one I learned that in school 60 years ago we learned that every seven years all the cells in our bodies are completely renewed and I remember very well that I think we were about 10 years old, that I started thinking about that and wondering where the old cells went and how this all took place and whether when I was going to be 14 it was going to be a great change. I was going to have a totally new body. Well, I couldn't make headway with it much. It's only later that I found out what was meant. The cells constantly fall apart and regenerate, so that after seven years, all of them have done it. So there's nothing new about that one. That there is no scientific reason why we should die. That death and aging are actually nothing more than programmed belief systems. What do you think about that? I try to stay away from personal views and my personal thoughts. I try to um, propagate the Buddha's teaching. So, the first thing one can say about that, that every person that was ever alive, including the enlightened ones, are all dead. Every single one of them. The Buddha lived to be 80. And whoever else has been around is no longer there. There is the rumor, whether it's well-founded or not, I don't know, 
that some people live to an enormously um, old age. But I don't know whether that is so. But what could be meant here if it is not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, is that Nibbana is also called the deathless. But for the simple reason that nothing is born there. Obviously, that's a bit of a, like a koan, isn't it? And I don't intend to elaborate. <laughs> Simply for the reason that I don't think it's useful at this point in time. So if that is something that is meant here, yes. Well, then death and aging are no longer a topic. When there's no birth, there's no aging and no death. And Nibbana has that as its function. However, I don't know that that's meant. I really don't know. I did hear a tape by Deepak Chopra, but uh, I have to admit that I don't remember whether that was meant or not. I can't say. Um, all I can say is that the enlightened ones all died too. And since enlightenment is the end of all dukkha, I can see no earthly reason why we want, should want to stick around. Why should we want to keep on living and maybe for thousands of years can you imagine such a calamity? I can't imagine that anybody would want that. Even if one would look as young as being 30, after 5,000 years one should really be bored with it all, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk about meditating with eyes closed versus eyes open? I've been instructed in both ways, but do not understand why one, uh, why one over the other, or one's better than the other. Well, I don't know that one's better than the other. The reason we close the eyes in this um, tradition is to eliminate another sense contact. Sense contact of hearing is there, the sense contact of touching is there, and unfortunately the sense contact of thinking is there. So we try to eliminate at least the seeing and the smelling and the tasting. Another way, another thing is that when the concentration really becomes solid, the eyes do close anyway. So 
there is one thing to be said against closing one's eyes. And that is when one is on the point of falling asleep. Then it's much better to open them. It is, unfortunately, a fact that most people have no experience of not thinking except for the very last moment before falling asleep. We can't fall asleep while we're thinking. So there has to be a single moment of not thinking, and then we fall asleep. So, when we sit here, and the mind has been instructed not to think, the mind is very apt to react and say, oh, well, in that case, must be sleeping time. And uh, just take off on that. And in that case, of course, eyes closed is another suggestion for sleeping. So if the mind feels sleepy instead of meditating, it's very helpful to open one's eyes immediately and to look at the light, wherever there is light. To move one's body to um, encourage blood circulation. To rub one's cheeks to pull one's earlobes and to give oneself a pep talk. <laughs> this is the time for meditation. Now the teacher is here. The whole situation is here. Everything has been arranged. I can always sleep in bed. I don't have to do it now or whatever else you like to tell yourself. These were instructions by the Buddha given to Mahamogalana, one of his greatest disciples, who apparently fell asleep during meditation. So we're not alone in that problem, but we can do something about it. So in that case, eyes open. But otherwise, it's better to close the eyes to have no sense contact. Our Western psychologists tell us not to be codependent, not to merge with another, to set strong boundaries. Our spiritual teachers tell us to practice compassion and loving kindness and selflessness, to strive towards being a bodhisattva. How do you put these together? Well, first I'd like to say that in this tradition, a bodhisattva means anyone who is actually interested in the spiritual path as far as enlightenment. So anyone at all that has sort of made an inner determination they want to reach enlightenment, be it this time around or another time, is called a bodhisattva. A bodhi means enlightenment. And sattva in Pali, sattva in Sanskrit, are beings, enlightenment beings, those that are on the path to enlightenment. Now, to set strong boundaries, there are two ways we can look at that. 
The first way of looking at boundaries is a mistaken view. A mistaken view that we're all separate. And um, there's actually an excellent book on the market called No Boundaries by um, Ken Wilber. And uh, it really tells the story from a scientific standpoint, but within the Buddhist teaching. The non-duality, I've mentioned it many times already. So that's one way of strong boundaries, wrong view. On the other hand, there is also validity in this if it was expressed differently. I would express it not to be dependent upon another's emotions. Then, then it's quite a valid advice given by psychologists. To be dependent upon other people's emotions is an extremely difficult situation. We're a slave then. We're like a, a leaf being blown about in the wind. And not only that, we don't even come to terms with our own emotions. We're constantly looking to see whether we're pleasing the other. And to please another is even more difficult than pleasing oneself. And one shouldn't even attempt it. Loving and kind and compassionate, but not trying to please. Trying to please has only one reason. That is, we want to be appreciated. We want something. Dukkha. A minute we want something. It's all dukkha. So if, if it was expressed differently, it's totally true. It's a very good advice and should be uh, taken to heart. Not to be dependent upon another's emotions, but to actually come to terms with one's own emotions and then purifying them to the point of compassion and loving-kindness. And then these two are no contradiction. They are actually the same thing. At times, my lower back aches, and it is more... Sorry, it is more something... Con no, I just can't read it. <laughs> and it is more con comfortable. I've got it. And it is more comfortable when I hold my stomach muscles firm. Is it necessary? Having stomach muscles to, uh, relaxed, does it matter? The Buddha said one can only meditate when one is comfortable in mind and body. So one has to find a way to be comfortable. Now, to be comfortable in mind, I have uh, suggested... Loving-kindness for oneself. 
loving-kindness in any way which it may arise so that the mind feels at ease. Gratitude. To be comfortable in the body, one has to find a way of sitting with it until such a time that the concentration becomes such that there is no body consciousness. At that time, it doesn't matter anymore. But if one is terribly uncomfortable to start out with, one is probably never going to get concentrated because one is concerned with the body aches rather than with the concentration. So, if it makes the person who's writing this more comfortable to have the stomach muscles firm, that's fine. No problem. The Buddha taught that we should not be attached. How are detachment and indifference different? Is detachment the same as equanimity? One could say that. One can say that detachment is the same as equanimity. But it's not useful to think and to say that the Buddha taught that we should not be attached. That's like saying, I should always be a good girl. It doesn't work. One's got to know what one is attached to. And one needs to know the ways and means of removing that kind of hold and clinging. So, the first step is to know that attachment brings dukkha. Until we know that, why would we want to get rid of it? Why should we make any attempts to get rid of our attachment if we don't know that it produces dukkha? So this is the first inquiry. So when we have seen that attachment produces dukkha because we are afraid to lose that we are that what we are attached to, then we can take steps to loosen that hold. Before the Buddha became enlightened, he had a, there was a baby. He was married, he had been married for quite a number of years, and a baby was born. And he named that baby Rahula. And Rahula means the feta. Feta because of attachment. And the same night when the baby was born, he left to go into the forest to find the answer to human dukkha. When we have found out that our attachment makes dukkha because we're afraid to lose, then we are ready to do something about it. And as we become ready to do something about it, it's not only the meditation that will help us to reach some equanimity, but the Buddha's teaching over and over again 
shows ways and means to have a different reaction than the one we're having now. One of the ways of having different reactions in order to establish equanimity, and it is true that detachment is equanimity, one of the ways is described as the five noble powers, the Arya Idis. Arya is noble, Idi is a power. In Sanskrit, that's a Siddhi. And Siddhis in Sanskrit or in India were considered to be magical powers. And the Buddha brought it down to a totally different kind of power, namely the kind of power which comes from overcoming one's own instincts and impulses. And he said that if there's something that we find very delightful and we would like to have it and keep it, we would, should see its drawbacks, namely its impermanence, and thereby establish equanimity. If we see something that is quite abhorrent, we should see its good features also, and thereby establish equanimity. And then he said, in both cases, to see both sides, because he did repeat his teaching over and over again, because it's very difficult to retain which makes four ways of having noble power. And the fifth one is for the enlightened one. He finds the delightful and the abhorrent totally equal. No different reactions. So we can practice that. There's something to be done. Just to know that we shouldn't be attached, that's not good enough. It's better than not knowing it, I suppose, but it doesn't help. But when we see something that is delightful, not to crave it, not to want it, not to want to keep it, and on the other side, something that we would immediately resent and reject, to see its good sides, that's practice. And from that, equanimity arises, which is greatly supported by meditation practice, by real concentration. Ah, there we are. You mentioned neighborhood concentration the first night. Could you say more about this? My mind is resting in the breath now for small stretches of time. Good. Could you say more about working with this quality of abiding and resting in calm? There are three kinds of concentration. The Buddha only mentioned one, but the other two are mentioned in the commentaries. First one is Kanika Samadhi, which means momentary concentration, which is what everybody has. If we didn't have it, we couldn't even make a phone call. We'd get all our numbers mixed up. We wouldn't be able to drive a car. We all have momentary concentration. 
certainly not good enough for seeing absolute reality, but it's certainly good enough for keeping us alive. And it's also good enough to get a start on meditation, momentary, a moment of concentration. But that should soon develop into neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi. Neighborhood concentration, I think I mentioned that, but I'm, I'm glad to repeat it, um, feels as if one is concentrated on the breath, but that there are wispy sort of thoughts in the background, which do not have a solid enough quality to even name them. They're just sort of in the back. And sometimes it feels as if there are, they are like clouds going in the back of the head. But that's just a feeling. At that time, there is a sort of, um, there's a possibility for sort of in and out of full concentration. And there is a possibility of an in and out of a calm feeling. And one gets at least a taste of what it's like to have calm in meditation. So it's very useful. But what we need to do with neighborhood concentration is to have a little more willpower. A little more willpower to become one with the breath. Not to observe it, but to experience it. Which is the open secret of meditation. Not be an observer. Be an experiencer. Be the participant. Not the one who's looking and naming while we're looking and naming, we're standing apart. I can be looking and naming right now. But when I'm participating, that possibility is open. So it needs just that little push to be really with the breath and not apart from it. Usually, we don't pay any attention to the breath, only when we lose it. As long as we've got it, we take it for granted. But when we start meditating, we become the observer of it. Well, then we've got breath and observer. Now, what we need to do as a next step is to let go of this observer and just have the experience. In reality, in absolute reality, there is only the experience. It's totally impossible to find the observer. It's a mind state, that's all. So if we let go of that mind state and just fall in with the experience, we've got apana samadhi, full concentration. And apana samadhi, full concentration, brings with it the states of absorption. And we will be talking about them. And I think there's another question about that also. Well, I think I've answered that.
If our true nature is Buddha nature, why are we so ignorant? How can an enlightened one become ignorant? Uh-uh. <laughs> Where does ignorance come from? <laughs> an enlightened one doesn't become ignorant. <laughs> an enlightened one is a person who has seen absolute truth and can no longer become ignorant. Our true nature if you want to call it Buddha nature, or the uh, enlightenment potential which we carry within, our true nature is obscured. We don't see it. We don't even know what it's like. Only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We have no idea what it's like. It's totally obscured. It's obscured through... Hate, greed, and delusion. And we didn't, at one stage, we didn't, we weren't enlightened and then became unenlightened. It's the other way around. We're unenlightened and at one stage we might be able to be enlightened. It doesn't work backward. The um, ignorance, avijja, is always the first step on the wheel that is hanging on the wall there of birth and death. At least that's, since it's round, one can start at any co- uh, point, but we usually start with avijja ignorance. It's usually depicted as a blind old woman trying to walk through a forest. The Buddha did not explain first causes. It's always in a circle, just like that picture. It's always cause and effect. It is there, the ignorance, and therefore all the rest of that, that 12-point dependent origination results. There are 12 points in that. But it would really go too far to explain that now too. I can't quite remember, but I think it's mentioned in my book, the, When the Iron Eagle Flies. Hmm? Yes. But is it only the uh, transcendental or also the both? Okay. So it's about both of the independent originations. Is it possible to be both a practicing Christian and a practicing Buddhist? Or are the two belief systems incompatible? Well, first I have to take exception to the description of the uh, Buddhist teaching as a belief system. It's everything but. There's no belief at all. Everything is practice and personal experience. There's nothing to be believed The only thing that the Buddha wanted was people who would like to get out of Dukkha to try his guidelines and find out for themselves.
when we look at the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, we will find that they practiced exactly what we are practicing. They used a different terminology. And if, for instance, we read Teresa da Villa, the interior castle, the instructions to her nuns, we will find that she was very visionary and will find it difficult to relate to that because not everybody is that visionary and sees that many visions. But basically, and underneath it all, she was practicing the meditative absorptions and explained them in her terminology. The same with Meister Eckhart, Francisco de Osuna, all the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, different terminology, different pictures, same pathway. Not only that, same goal. The loss of the ego illusion. Through many different instructions and guidelines. If a practicing Christian means that, there's absolutely no contradiction. We're practicing the same thing. I'm not quite sure what it means to be a practicing Christian. I've never been one. So I can't really say. But if it means, for instance, Teresa de Villa did not call what she was doing meditation. She was call, she called it the different stages of prayer. The first one is verbal, the second one is mental, and the third stage is only feeling. So that means a practicing Christian. Yes, totally compatible. I was invited once to the Eckert Society, which, although he was German, exists only in England, and to give a talk there. And I give a talk, Meister Eckert meets the Buddha. And I used the uh, some ser uh, several sermons of Meister Eckert and one of the discourses of the Buddha and showed that they were doing and saying the same thing. I have recently compared the uh, Sermon on the Mount with the loving-kindness discourse of the Buddha to show that they are both saying the same thing. If that means practicing Christian, yes, totally compatible. Unfortunately, I think there are other possibilities of being a practicing Christian, but I really don't know exactly. So, the reality, the absolute truth, is one. The pathways to absolute truth are many. Some are not worth taking. They don't lead all the way. 
but those of the great religions are all complete. In the Buddhist teaching, we have an advantage. The advantage of exactness and clarity. In Jesus' teaching, we have to be able to understand the symbolism, which is very rare that it's being understood and used. But if it's understood and used, it points in exactly the same direction. Sometimes Buddhist practice seems very individually orientated. Is there a place for social service in the path of purification or must one strive for perfection first? Oh no, God forbid we should do try for perfection first. <laughs> social service is part of the path of purification. Generosity, giving to others, thinking of others, all that is part of the purification process. Generosity is the first one of ten virtues which the Buddha mentioned that we need to cultivate in order to actually be on this path. Now, it doesn't mean that the other nine are worth less. It just means that generosity opens the door. And he spoke about generosity many times on many different occasions and he called it one of the great blessings for the one who is generous. The reason it's a great blessing is because in order to be generous we have to momentarily forget about ourselves. And when we forget about ourselves we couldn't possibly have a problem. It all vanishes. Like magic. It's all gone. Because we're concerned with somebody else. We can't do two things at the same time. It's wonderful. Generosity means, therefore, a taste of letting go of this self-illusion and self-assertion and self-concern, a taste of it. And when we get a taste of it, we might be induced to go further with it. Generosity is an opening of the heart. It can be material goods that we're generous with. It can be service. It can be a sharing of our skills can be loving, giving compassion, listening, all of that is generosity. Social service as a um, profession is of course everywhere used and in Buddhist countries we find a great deal of that because there is 
so much poverty. So, striving for one's own purification does not mean that one pays no attention to the world around one. On the contrary, it makes it all much clearer what the world around one is actually suffering from so that there is more urgency in one's practice. Why should we practice if we don't recognize suffering? We've got to have a reason for doing whatever it is we're doing. If we're eating, we're, the reason is we're hungry. If we're sleeping, the reason is we're, we're tired. So, if we practice, the reason's got to be we want to get out of dukkha. And while we're doing that, we can see all the dukkha around us. And the more we can help, the more we can let go of this self-cherishing. Is it okay to use a phrase such as, may I learn to love myself better as a mantra when meditating? A bit long. I think I need to dis- explain again, because it's important to know about it, the difference between calm and insight. I'll just do it briefly. But it's so important, and I know how often and uh, how many people are totally unaware of the difference between the two. And if we don't know the difference between the two, we don't know what we're doing. And it will be very difficult to progress step by step. Calm has eight steps. Insight has nine. And it goes from step to step. And we've got to know them. Now, obviously, within a week, we can't learn all eight steps of calm, nor all nine steps of insight. That takes a little longer. They are in books. And books are helpful. And again, they are in my book, When the Iron Eagle Flies. But I know that it's not the same. Reading a book is not the same as having the teaching. And yet, it just takes longer. When I say, may I learn to love myself better, that's not geared towards calm. To have that kind of thought process can bring about insight and has been generated by insight, namely by the insight that I'm not loving myself. That's the, the, the cause for this. And then, the insight also that I would like to love myself better. It's useful. So <clears throat> the whole thing is geared towards insight. When it becomes mechanical, 
then it can be geared towards calm. When it just follows like a very mechanical rhythm, then the mind can become calm with it. But that takes time, a great deal of time, until the mind absorbs this fairly long sentence so that it can be a rhythmic um, output which doesn't even have to be verbalized. It can just be thought. So we have to distinguish. Do I want to gain insight or do I want to gain calm? If I want to gain calm, it's better to use a much shorter word or version. Maybe just love, the word love, or maybe if it's necessary, love myself. And with that, calm has an easier time to arise. And again, calm is a means. Insight is the goal. And it's not possible to bypass the means, which is the mistaken view taught in many places. We cannot bypass the means. We need them. And the Buddha himself used them. So, calm is what we're trying to achieve. And on the way there, of course we get insights. Of course something arises and tells me, aha, this is what I'm always thinking. I'm always planning. Or I'm always hoping. Or I'm always remembering. And that's insight. All these are small insights which put together then create quite a new perspective. So if calm should arise, I would suggest no more than two words. What is the difference between absorption and trance states? It's very easy to find out. If one has had meditative absorption, afterwards one feels very energetic, the mind is clear, and one feels rejuvenated. If one has had trance, one wants to go to bed. It's very simple. It's very tiring. You seem to put more emphasis on developing wholesome feeling states, such as love and compassion, than mental states. Is this because you're a woman? <laughs> I think that's a compliment, isn't it? Or because you think our society is more lacking in wholesome feelings than mind, or for some other reason. Do the words feeling and emotion mean the same? Well, first the first question. I don't do that. I don't put more em emphasis on developing wholesome feeling states. I said, there are four supreme efforts to have wholesome mind states, not to let an unwholesome thought 
arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. Four supreme efforts. And talking about dukkha, as I did this morning, was an explanation how we should see it, how we should deal with it, not in the usual way of disliking it and running away from it, because dislike is unwholesome mind state. And then we have four wholesome emotions, or supreme emotions, which I talked about. However, with the loving-kindness meditation, I do put emphasis on the developing of these kind of emotions, because not only do they help us in our meditation practice, but they are sort of the oil that we pour into our whole inner system so that it's smooth and harmonious. Without those feelings, any kind of life has a feeling of push and pull about it. It doesn't seem to flow. With love and compassion it does. I can't say whether I'm doing this because I'm a woman, because I can't remember what it was like to be a man. I have no idea. I'm doing what comes naturally. The words feeling and emotion mean the same. The word feeling actually has a two aspects. One is sensation, physical, and the other is emotion, the emotional feeling. Now, I quite often use the word feeling in order to describe emotion. But the feeling encompasses both sensation and emotion but I, I quite often use feeling in order to say, instead of saying emotion. For those of us who are here for the first week, can you describe briefly the next two weeks? No. <laughs> Not briefly, anyway. <laughs> but if the one who wrote this really wants to know, why don't you stay <laughs> and find out? But I will say one thing about it. Uh, when we have a, a longer period of retreat, the um, our schedule remains the same. But um, we don't ring quite as many bells. 
because we expect those that are here to ring their own bells, to know when to come and when to go. And also, I use one or more of the Buddha's discourses and read a, a little bit out of it and then explain that. Just to give um, a feeling for what the Buddha actually said and a foundation for the Dhamma, the teaching. And so I pick out um, one or several discourses and then uh, describe that. And otherwise, well, people hopefully meditate. I was taught to breathe with each step with walking meditation. I was not able to do this. When you described walking meditation, you did not mention this. No, I did not mention it quite um, deliberately, and I probably should have said, please do not try to coordinate breath with walking. Um, we're breathing with each step anyway, but we don't pay attention to breath and step. It makes it far too fragmented. Breath here, step there. It doesn't bring any kind of calmness with it. So when we do walking meditation, we don't pay any attention to the breath. We just take it for granted like we always do and pay attention to the walking itself. It's quite impossible to be here and there. We can only be here, there, here, there. And that doesn't bring anything really productive with it. My wife meditates to make a decision about something. I have difficulty with this. Do you recommend this process? <laughs> well, you know, some people, I don't know, some people say they are meditating when they are thinking about a problem. So I would sort of guess, I'm guessing, that this means that she's, she's thinking about the problem that she wants to decide upon. Um, maybe she, th she means that she's sitting very quietly and letting the problem arise and then looking at it and uh, trying to see what um, her feelings are so that she can make a better decision. I see nothing wrong with that at all. It, uh, maybe the word meditate is not exactly right, but uh, otherwise I can't see anything wrong with it, if that's the way, the way I just described it. Concerning the arriving of pain while sitting, which you discussed this morning, does freedom come from noting the sensations and realizing that it is when we add the label painful that we really suffer, or from acknowledging this is painful but I'm not going to move? in an effort to see its impermanence and to gain freedom from aversion. Well, almost, but not quite. 
the freedom comes from noting the sensation. That is when we add in it. Yes, the first thing. Um, mm, Instead of saying it's painful, we say it's unpleasant. It makes it a, a little less of a sting. And um, from acknowledging it's painful, but I'm not going to move, um, no, no, that doesn't work. If we acknowledge it's painful, but I'm not going to move, no matter what comes, I'm going to... make this effort because at that time when we acknowledge that it's painful and then we make that determination not to move the mind is not at ease it's not the physical aspect which counts it's watching the mind how it relates and reacts so when we see how the mind reacts with dislike or aversion that's the time to drop that if we can and substitute acceptance we only suffer if we have the determination that it should be otherwise if we allow it to be as it is, there's no dukkha. So that's one thing. The other thing is to learn that we can choose to react, but we don't have to react. And then, when we have learned that, that we don't always have to react, then we feel some freedom. So yes, we can um, acknowledge the fact that it's unpleasant and we can also see that it's impermanent but usually it's not impermanent enough to make people uh, lose their aversion to it. It has to be far more impermanent than that. It should go away immediately. So when it doesn't do that, there's still aversion. So when we see that aversion and don't react with moving, but we still have aversion, it's still a mental reaction and still not useful. The only way it becomes useful is we can drop the aversion. A related question about desire. When an unwholesome desire arises, should we note it without acting on it? or substitute a wholesome thought. Well, noting means noticing, doesn't it? It's a far overused word in meditation, noting. Somebody would have, will have to come up with something new, I think, to make sure that people know what is meant. We can't substitute what we haven't noticed before. So, of course, we have to notice it first. We have to know, or we can say no, that this is an unwholesome desire. And having known that, then we can substitute. 
So, knowing, knowing it makes it possible to substitute. Knowing it and not acting upon it, we can also, instead of substituting, we always have the possibility of knowing and dropping, letting go. It's much more difficult than substituting. If we have that ability through long years of practice, that when something comes up which is unwholesome, to drop it, by all means, no substitution is necessary. But if one hasn't done this for years on end, it doesn't work. We don't just drop our desires. We niggle around them. Maybe we can find out a way to even justify it. So if we are quite sure it's unwholesome, it's much easier to substitute than to drop. But if we can, it would mean knowing and then letting go. Which in the final analysis is of course the result of that constant substitution. But the first step is substitution. The next step is dropping, letting go. And the final step is it doesn't rise anymore. How does a person access the jhanas? Would appreciate your instruction, comment on how to do this. I'll do it briefly. And uh, I'll talk about it in detail day after tomorrow. And uh, give all the possible guidelines, but I'll answer this briefly, particularly for those who may be on the verge of being able to um, enter into meditative absorption. If we use the breath as a meditation subject, there's a very clear guideline Namely, when the concentration has been solid enough, long enough, and long is arbitrary, the breath becomes finer and finer. And it can become so fine that we can't find it. Most people, well, everybody who hasn't been taught, then take a deep breath to find their breath again and start all over again. And that's the wrong way. At the time when the breath is so fine, it means that the mind has become very subtle too. It's ready. It's ready for the next step. And at the time when the breath is that fine, we don't have to take a deep breath and find it again, but instead we put our full attention 
on the feeling, the sensation in this case, which arises within. And that sensation is utterly delightful. So we never have to question it. Is this the right sensation or is that the right sensation? Did I get it or didn't I get it? It's so utterly delightful that there's no question about it. It can be stronger or it can be weaker. It can be different at times, but it's always delightful. And having been able to go from the breath to the delightful sensation, we now have to learn to stay on that delightful sensation. That's the very first step into the meditative absorptions, of which there are eight, which bring automatic purification and automatic insight. And I will explain both of those features in detail. However, just for those who are getting near or already there where the breath becomes very fine it is important to know that in order to enter into that those inner chambers of elevated consciousness we need to first go to the delightful sensation in Pali the delightful sensation is called Piti P-I-T-I and it is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And that should, I think, immediately put a halt to any ideas that one shouldn't do that, which are prevalent. Wherever one goes, one hears it. So, being one of the seven factors of enlightenment, this is where the practice leads us. The practice leads us to the meditative absorptions on the one hand and to the nine stages of insight. And the nine stages of insight are tremendously supported, of course, through a calm mind. So, with that, I'll just mention another instruction for the first jhana, this is the first jhana, the delightful sensation. The first instruction is that one has to learn to stay on it. What happens usually for those who experience it the first time, experience it and the mind says, oh, what was that? Very nice. And of course that's the end of that one. <laughs> So we have to start all over again. Second time around, <clears throat> one is usually prepared, and one doesn't have to do that, or maybe the third time. We need to stay on that delightful sensation. And the mind, of course, not being fully trained yet, falls off it. Most of the time, we can go back onto that sensation without having to revert back to the breath. Most of the time, most people can. They can go back, even they've fallen off it, and it's no longer, uh, it seems to be no longer available. They put their mind back to where 
they were actually experiencing that sensation and they can come back to it. If not, we've got to go back to the breath. We've got to practice that long enough so that there is at least 10 to 15 minutes of continual experience of that sensation. And again, we must become the experiencer, the participant, and not the observer. We are that sensation. It makes it so much easier. As long as we're the observer, we're standing apart. And there's a sensation, and there is me. And with the gap in between, it's very difficult to bridge. But when there is nothing but the sensation, there's nothing to bridge, there's no gap. There's nothing other than that. Having learned to stay on it, and we don't have to look on the watch. When I say 10 or 15 minutes, it's a solid chunk of time, that's all. And then the concentration wavers again, or is finished, or the time for the meditation is finished. There are three things that need to be done before one opens one's eyes. The first thing is to recognize the fact that that delightful sensation is also impermanent. No longer, no longer concentration or no longer the time for it, and it dissolves. That too is impermanent. As we are always so keen to have our dukkha impermanent, we're going to have to learn that our sukha is equally impermanent, that what is pleasurable is equally impermanent. And then we get a better grasp of the situation of a human being. Everything moves. Everything is lost. Nothing can be held on to. It's like sand, which is constantly going through our fingers. We can't keep it. Or like water in a moving stream. The second thing we have to look at is a recapitulation of the pathway we have taken to get there, so that we can do it again. So that we don't have to wish for it, to hope for it, to think about it, but just to do it. The recapitulation should start with the moment we enter the meditation hall. Have we thought differently? Have we sat differently? Have we eaten differently? What have we done? Was there a particular trigger that helped us? What have we actually done the whole time? It's a recapitulation which will eventually no longer be necessary because the pathway to the first meditative absorption will be so clear that we can go along it without any problem. But in the beginning, we need to know what, we have do what we're doing, which uh, steps we've taken. And the third thing to inquire into is what am I learning from this experience? Whether the mind replies or not, that's the second question. It should definitely be asked. And that's essential 
because each of the meditative absorptions has a definite inside mode attached to it. And the clearer and calmer the mind is, the easier it is to see that. But it all boils down to staying with the breath, experiencing the breath, being the breath long enough so that we can actually have the pathway which leads us into the states of an elevated consciousness. I will explain and detail more about this day after tomorrow.